Sketches from Scripture presents. What is discipleship? If you are part of a church, you may have heard the term disciple or discipleship before. But what does it mean? What is a discipleship group? Is being a disciple a strictly Christian thing? What's the difference in being a student and being a disciple? How does one become a disciple? What does it look like? What are our responsibilities? Is it for everyone? How important is it? This four-part series will cover the basics of being a disciple of Christ, what it means to trust and follow Jesus. We'll standardize an extensive vocabulary, envision a fully mature disciple, and talk through the process of growing spiritually as a disciple and parenting others. The information we'll discuss is largely taken from North Boulevard Church of Christ's Discipling Handbook, which can be downloaded for free at northboulevard.com dbs. What is it like to be a baby? from a newborn through that whole sort of infant stage. What is, what is that experience like? What is it like to be a baby? What is it like to be an infant? Uh, what is it like? Uh, what, what can a baby do? What can infants do? What does their life consist of? What are some of the characteristics of their, of their life? Um, kind of put us in that mindset. These are the kind of questions that we're going to be looking at after a short review. So um, let's go ahead and and look at the uh, discipling handbook just real quick. Again, we're talking about growing disciples or making disciples, helping other people be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, We're helping them trust and follow Jesus is what that means. So we looked at page one here, this page on alignment, and down at the bottom on the page uh, about alignment, we find that it's important to align our definitions, our understanding of a discipleship process, and our vision of what a mature disciple looks like. So our definitions, our process, and our vision of maturity. And so we've kind of put up as a vision of maturity Jesus as the perfect disciple maker, of course, and as someone who completely obeys the spirit, completely obeys the father. We put up uh, the apostle Paul as a great example of a disciple maker. We have his letters. We see his relationship with Timothy. We see his influence on the early church. So that's something that's easy for us to look at. And in particular, look at 2 Timothy 2, 2, where Paul tells Timothy, the things that I've taught you, you give to reliable people so that they can teach others also. So you get four generations of disciples there. Paul, Timothy, reliable people, others also. And spiritual maturity uh, requires sort of having these, these multiplications, these generations that come after you. So until you have generations of disciple-making disciples coming after you, there's still some maturity. There's still some growth that you can have. So that's good news. On the page that says a disciple is, we learn that a disciple is an apprentice, that a student is someone that learns something. A disciple is someone that learns how to do something from someone else. And so they 
mimic a master until they become a master themselves. And in the context of Christianity, we want to be a disciple of Jesus. And so we're going to learn things. We're going to learn how to do things from Jesus. We're going to learn how to live life. And we're going to learn how to make disciples by watching Jesus. And so we see the first words of Jesus to his disciples here in Matthew 4, 19. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That means we're going to make a decision to follow Jesus. When we do that, he's going to begin to transform us into people that are committed to his mission of going out and telling people the good news. And so a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, committed to the mission of Jesus, someone whose, whose head has made a decision, their heart is being changed, and their hands are at work. And very simply, it's just someone who trusts and follows Jesus. And so when we looked at making disciples, that's sort of what we boiled that down to at the bottom of that page. Disciple making means helping people trust and follow Jesus. And I've said several times, if you can just remember that phrase, trust and follow Jesus, trust and follow Jesus, that's really the, the kernel of discipleship, trusting and following Jesus. What does it mean to make disciples? You're going to help other people trust and follow Jesus. That's it. If you're helping other people trusting uh, to trust and follow Jesus, then you're doing disciple making. You're doing discipleship work. So um, then we looked at the discipleship lifestyle, which is over here on the right side of the page. And we saw that there's these six elements of the discipleship lifestyle, Father, Son, and Spirit, relationships, intentionality, the Bible, journey, and multiplication. And you have to have all six of these things or it's not really discipleship. If any one of these things is missing, you might have a very good thing but it's not discipleship. Many of us have small groups that have a lot of these things, but they don't have multiplication. And so they're excellent small groups. They're great life groups. They're good Bible studies, and there's nothing wrong with them. But if they're not multiplying, it's not discipleship. And so we need to have something in our life where there is some multiplication. Otherwise, how are there more people coming to know about Jesus? There's got to be multiplication some kind of way. So uh, part two, we looked at the discipleship contexts. And we looked at Luke 9 and 10, where Jesus sends out the 12, and then there's the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus sends out the 72. And we talked about really how all five of these contexts are very present in those stories from Luke 9 into Luke 10. If you look at pretty much all the stories in Luke 9 and 10, you can take each little story and plug it into one of these contexts, either the public 70 plus people, uh, the total church, uh, the, the total church assembly and beyond your city, your nation, your world, the social context, a class, a ministry, some kind of missional community, about 20 to 70 people, a personal context. This would be most of our small groups, but you know, a life group, we, we call them life groups because it's people living life together. They know each other. Um, they're familiar with each other's family. They know personal details about each other. It's personal. They meet in each other's homes. It's about six to 20 people, much larger than 20 people. And it's really hard to be personal. It's really hard to know everyone and for everyone to sort of get equal time in the study and those kinds of things. Uh, transparent uh, context is two to five people. This is a very, very small group. And then now at the bottom, you have the divine group, which is just one person alone. So um, again, going back to scripture, you can take all the stories of the gospel and plug them into these five contexts one way or another. You have Jesus going off to pray by himself. 
You have Jesus with Peter, James, and John. That's his transparent group. That's um, three guys out of the 12. The 12 is like the personal group. These are the guys that live life with Jesus. But Peter, James, and John get to do things that the rest of the 12 don't get to do, that the other nine don't get to do. They, they're there at the transfiguration. They're praying with him in the garden. They go with him on certain healings and those kinds of things. Jesus has some sharp words or some strong words to say to these three. He tells uh, the mother of James and John that, uh, you know, they will drink the cup that Jesus has been given, but he can't promise that they will sit in any place of honor, that those are for the father to give. He tells uh, Peter lots of hard teachings, but also gives Peter a lot of responsibility. He gives John a lot of responsibility, too, from the cross. He, he basically tells John, take care of my mother. She's your mother now. You're, you're her son now. Um, the social context, I mean, this would be like the disciples. So those 72 going out at the beginning of Luke 10, that that's the social. So it's the personal group, the 12 going out in Luke nine and in Luke 10, it's the social group. It's the, it's the missional community going out at the beginning of Luke 10, these 72 disciples. Who are they? Well, we know who some of them are, uh, maybe not those particular 72, but we know who's sort of in this ring, who's in this arena, who are the people that we hear about that are disciples, but they're not part of the 12. They're not the 12 disciples. Uh, Jesus handpicks the 12, prays in Luke 5, we see that he prays about it and then sort of comes out in front of all the other disciples and says, you know, I've picked these 12. So there's other disciples. Well, who are they? Well, some of them we know. It's Lazarus. It's his, uh, Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. Um, it's people like this. So there's other characters that we come across that maybe uh, live in a certain town that Jesus comes through or something like that. But there's there's other disciples around. Certainly by Acts 1, there's about 120 of them. So that would be sort of right in that, that missional community kind of size. And then you have Jesus interacting with plenty of people just out in public. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 would be a great example. There's a large group. And again, like we pointed out last night, what's the first thing Jesus does in the feeding of the 5,000? He tells them, have them sit down in groups of 50. That's a fact I never even noticed until I started studying discipleship and started studying some of these ideas about discipleship contexts. That's a fact that I bet most people, if you ask them to recount the the feeding of the 5,000, many of them can get a lot of the details. And I bet the majority of them will skip over the fact that he had them sit down in groups of 50. It seems unimportant. But when you look at it from a discipleship context and from the, the, the ability of 12 men to be able to actually interface with family groups, now it makes so much sense. Oh, well, 12 guys, everybody sits down in groups of about 50 each. You know, you're going to have, what, about a, a 100 groups, right? And so... 12 into 100, everybody's going to have like eight or nine groups. And most of those groups are going to be two or three families each. Like suddenly that starts to seem really manageable for the disciples. Uh, not that they're going to know everybody, but that they might know, you know, three or four uh, of the of the people groups that they meet dur during that time. So understanding these discipleship contexts helps you put a lot of the scripture stories into proper focus. So there's Another thing that we talked about that's not in this book, but we talked about last night, so I want to bring it up again, and that is the idea of method. So when I study, uh, I have four books that I take the guys that I disciple, I take them through these same four books. We we start with Colossians, and then we do Ephesians, and then we do First Timothy, and we do Second Timothy. I think if I have time, I'll circle back around at the very end and we'll talk more about why I choose those books. But one thing that I get to do through those four books is they sort of get increasingly complex as we go. Colossians is just very 
simple, short, positive letter. So it's good to kind of cut our teeth on and get started with. Ephesians is basically the same letter as Colossians, but it goes more in depth. It's more detailed. And it's written to a church that Paul knows. That was his church for three years. The Colossian church he knows about, he's familiar with. But the Ephesian church, that was his church that he was the, the preacher of, basically, the pastor of for, for three years. And so he, he's able to say some things to them that he knows they'll understand. He can use some t- some more detailed language, maybe some dif- more difficult theology and that sort of thing, because he, he knows they'll, they'll understand it. First Timothy is basically written to that same church. First Timothy is really second Ephesians, if you want to get down to it, because Timothy is still in Ephesus and Paul is writing. It's to Timothy, but it's really for the benefit of the church. And it's about church leadership and those kinds of things. And so when to, to put first Timothy in context, you got to know Acts and uh, some of the church history and sort of follow when Paul left and when Timothy went back and when Paul and Timothy may have parted ways and when Paul was in prison, all these kinds of things. Second Timothy is a very sweet pastoral letter just from, from Paul directly to Timothy about their relationship. So what you have is you have Colossians, which are just sort of reading the text. I'll read this paragraph and, and interpret it. What does it mean? And, and obey that. Okay. Ephesians, you're looking at it as a letter. Hey, this was a letter. It was written to people. There's a context here. What's the Letter context. Okay, he's starting an argument in chapter one. He's making finer points on that in chapters two, three, and four. Now he's showing the consequences of that in five and six. And so we start to look at the context in Ephesians. When we get to First Timothy, we back out even farther and start looking at the biblical context. So not just the context within the letter, although we still do that. We still look at First Timothy and say, there's an argument here that Paul's making inside this letter. What is that argument? And uh, how is that uh, accomplished, right? So we still have the inside context of the letter, but we also show its context to how it relates to the book of Ephesians, how it relates to the book of Acts, how Acts relates back to some of the things going on in the Gospels even. And so we start tying in, and and of course, Paul all the time is using Old Testament scripture. So we start tying in the Old Testament and how the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so suddenly now we're looking at the whole Bible. Then by the time we get to 2 Timothy we are backed out even farther to the point that we're still looking at the things that we looked at before. We're still looking at it piece by piece. We're still looking at it as a, as a single document, as a single letter. We're still looking at it in its biblical context. But now we're backing out and looking at the relationship that Paul and Timothy have and asking, wow, what kind of relationship do, do two people have to have with each other in order for this letter to exist? What kind of relationship did Paul and Timothy have to have in order for Paul to write this letter to Timothy? At that point, we're talking about method. At that point, we're really backed out. We're talking about methods. So the same thing can be done with Luke 9 and 10. You can look and see all the individual stories and walk away and decide how you're going to obey those. You can look at the gospel of Luke in context and, and ask what's Luke purpose as an author and who's he writing to and all those kinds of things. You can look at the story of Jesus in total as the gospel and as the whole Bible and say, okay, chronologically, what's happening here? And okay, we, to interpret the the feeding of the 5,000, we've got to bring in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 from John and, and make some decisions on that. And that'll help us interpret these things. You look at it in the context of the whole Bible. And then you back out and you look at it even from an either farther way of viewpoint and you skim it over and you say, wait, I see what Jesus is doing here. I see how he is doing these things. I see some method here. I see that he sends the 12 out on mission. There's the feeding of the 5,000, which is for the disciples. They seem to meet some people. In fact, there's some people after that that really seem like they want to follow Jesus. And then at Luke chapter 10, now there's 72 people that can be sent out on mission, just like the 12 were. And so you see people growing and sort of moving up. So that's what we're really getting at here is method. So as we talked about at the very beginning, we want to align ourselves on definitions. We want to align ourselves on the discipleship 
process. And so that's really what we're looking at here is we're starting to look at a process. Okay, now that we have these contexts, we start to see how disciple making maybe could take place because it's going to look different at every single one of these levels. So at the divine at the divine level, you are those are, those are your own personal disciplines. At the transparent level, you're in some kind of discipleship group with one to four other people, same gender, lots of vulnerability and accountability happening. In the personal level, hopefully you have a life group or a small class or something that you're a part of where you know everybody and check in on each other regularly. And Bible still centric to that. Hopefully you have a social group. Maybe this is your adult Bible class on Sunday mornings, or maybe your church is this small that you kind of know each other socially. Uh, maybe you're part of some missional community or ministry like Mills on Wheels or a campus ministry or something like that. And then all of us have some kind of public ministry. I mean, I, I like this term. Here's a term that you can borrow and, and start to think about. But um, I have dubbed myself the self-appointed chaplain of certain places that I go, whether it's uh, Starbucks or First Watch or uh, the Boulevard restaurant that I go to a lot. I consider myself the self-appointed chaplain. So it's they don't get a choice. I'm the chaplain. They deal with it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not up to them. I've decided. But uh, I'm not there. I'm the chaplain. I'm not there to hit people over the head with the Bible and that sort of things. I'm, I'm here to, to listen to them. I'm here to know the people in my parish and care about them and pray for them when they have babies or when there's funerals. I try to be present in their life. And if they have things that they need, I try to show up and, and meet those needs. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow night. But uh, remember that term, self-appointed chaplain. Find a place that you frequent. Decide that you're the self-appointed chaplain of that place and act accordingly. So you begin to see now how discipleship can start to take place in these different contexts. So move on to some little bit of new material. I think most of you who are listening currently were part of the last series, and so you got to hear a good bit of this, but we are still going to go through it just because there may be some people that listen to this on, on replay that, that only want to listen to these to this series. So I'm going to put another card up here, and it's the card that I, uh, it's the question that I asked at the very beginning, and that is, what's it like being an infant? So what I would like for you to do as this card pops up is I'd like for you to just brainstorm with me for just a second and ask, okay, ask yourself, what's it like to, to be an infant? Like, what do infants do? What are some things that infants do? This is probably going to be a really short list, right? So... Uh, some of you, I guess many of you listening have your own children. You've been through all the stages of growth with, uh, the, with your children. So what are some things that babies do? What is their life like? Babies, uh, really, again, it's going to be a short list. You're going to have, um, they're going to sleep. What else? They're going to eat. If they're eating, then they're going to be making messes. They're going to be um, needing diapers and that sort of thing, right? They're When they're hungry, they do what? They cry. Other than that, what are they doing? Sleeping. You know, what else? They're, um, they're laying there, right? Totally dependent, right? They're totally dependent. So what's it like being an infant? It's total dependence. So when we look at being a spiritual infant, then we're going to see the same kind of thing. So after someone is born again, after their baptism, they are a spiritual infant. They are completely dependent upon other people. Now, 
we kind of know this maybe in our head. It seems to make sense. But think about how this actually normally plays out in a church context. Someone makes a decision to follow Christ. Someone makes a decision to be baptized, to have their sins washed away, and to say, I'm committing my life to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay, fantastic. What do we as a church normally do in response to that? Now, church staff might have some organized things that they do. So they might take their name down and get a Bible with their name on it and put their name in the bulletin. And uh, some churches, they give it to, they give you a T-shirt to get baptized in. You get to keep the T-shirt or whatever. And so sometimes church staffs have sort of a little bullet list of things they check off. Okay, now that you've been baptized, you get these things. But what do we as a church do? Not just the staff, not the people that we pay to be ministers, but what do the rest of us ministers do? Remember, we're all ministers, right? So what do the rest of us do? Well, sadly, many of us don't do anything. You know, we might pray for them. We might uh, welcome them to the family. Maybe we'll have them over to eat once or something like that. But a lot of us are just not going to do anything. So imagine if a baby was born and we all celebrated and passed around the, you know, the little bubblegum cigars and that sort of thing and had balloons and had a big party and welcomed the baby into existence and then put it in its crib, turned out the light, shut the door, walked away and never went back in there. What would happen to that baby? It would not survive. And so the same thing happens with spiritual infants. They're totally dependent on those who are more spiritually mature than they are. They don't know how to read the Bible or why they should or what it is or where to start or what any of this is that they're looking at. They don't understand. They don't know what prayer is. They don't know how to pray. It seems like weird that somebody, for those of us who have grown up the church, it may seem weird that somebody doesn't know how to pray, but if they've never been exposed to it, they don't know what it is. If they're, they're not still sure, you know, if they've made a decision to follow Christ, they have some idea of who God is, but uh, and hopefully maybe they've already been been praying at some point, but, you know, maybe they don't understand exactly the, the mechanics of it. Does prayer work? What is it? What does it do? Is it a, you know, if I pray about anything, does it just happen? How come some stuff does and some stuff doesn't? I mean, they're going to have lots of questions and they're going to be totally dependent on someone else who is spiritually mature. So here's the tough part of this for those of us listening here. Okay. Let's take it back into the biological realm. You have a biological baby, you got a baby, right? If a baby was born and we had a celebration and then the parents of that baby put it in the crib, turned out the light and shut the door and never went back in that bedroom. And, you know, days later, the child is, is dead. What would we do? We would take the parents and we'd put them in prison, right? We'd put them, we'd put them in jail. We would punish the, the parents because whose responsibility is it? It's the parents. No one would walk into that, into that room and go, well, that poor baby just didn't know what to do. It's a shame. I hate to see it happen. That's not what would happen. We would round those parents up and quickly throw them into jail. And rightfully so, right? Okay. So when someone is intentionally neglecting a child, we make, we make that a crime. So spiritually, we need to really think of things in the same way. You know, Jesus had some very tough words for the 11 remaining disciples. So this is in John 15, when they go out into the vineyard and Jesus is saying, you know, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Judas has already left at this point. So you have the faithful 11 left and Jesus is talking to them. So he's not talking to just the lost. He's not talking to Gentiles or Romans or whatever. This is the 11 disciples that have been with him from, you know, a year and a half to three years. They've lived life with him. They're still sticking around. They've just finished Passover Seder. Jesus has been talking about his death. It's a very important moment. And what does Jesus tell him? He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. 
And if there's any branches here that don't produce fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. That's some really serious talk. What does that mean? Well, in understanding spiritual growth, just like biological growth, and comparing a spiritual infant to a biological infant, I think we can see the seriousness of it. What Jesus is saying is, these little buds, these small branches that need to grow are dependent on you. They're dependent on someone to take care of them. These little seeds that are coming up, they're dependent on someone to take care of them, to tend to them, to pull weeds and to water and to fertilize and to build a fence. You have a job to do. You have a role to play. And spiritual infants need spiritual parenting. It's very critical. So uh, next, let's talk about childhood. What's it like being a child? What is it like being uh, a child? So if an infant is newborn to four or five years old, what's it like being a child from four or five up to 13, 17, something like that? Well, think about, let's think about what are the life changes that are going to go on during this time. So an infant kind of learns to talk. They An infant begins learning things. An infant starts out totally helpless, but slowly learns how to do some things on its own. So by four or five, the infant is mostly dressing themselves, I guess. They're, I think I learned to tie my shoe before I was five, right? We're talking, many of us talking nonstop uh, by this time. We're learning to sort of play on our own and entertain ourselves, being able to feed ourselves, these kinds of things. That's happening in infanthood. What happens in childhood? Childhood, the number one thing that begins in childhood at the beginning of the childhood stage, and I think probably clearly defines going from being an infant into a child, is socialization. So we have playdates and things when we're infants, but when we're a child, what happens? We go to school. Now, some of us were homeschooled. I understand that, but many of us, we just went to public school, right? And so going to school, suddenly you're making connections with all these new people and all these different families, families that have different values or different preferences than you. And suddenly you're having to differentiate yourself from everyone else. So I don't know if you feel this way. Maybe I feel this way because I don't, I don't have children of my own. But three and four-year-olds, they just all kind of the same to me. Like, unless I'm around them for a while and kind of get a sense of their personality, just like three and four-year-olds, it's like they all just are kind of the same. Five and six-year-olds all have their personalities more figured out, right? Because they have to, because there's 20 of them in a room. They have to differentiate themselves from everyone else. Uh, you like this, I like that, and uh, these kinds of things. And they start discovering an identity. And so uh, in infancy, the identity is just totally themselves. The whole world is about me. In childhood, their identity now breaks open and they see that they're part of something larger at work. Now, it's mostly around other children at this point, right? But there is some discovery happening and there's connections that are being made. So spiritually, it's the same thing. Uh, a spiritual child needs connections. I'm actually going to go on to the uh, next page of the um, of the discipling handbook. It says how to disciple, but there's some information here that will show us also more about how a disciple grows. So notice on the the child wheel down in the bottom right hand side there, it says connect. This is how to disciple someone in a child stage is you want to disciple them through their connections. And so those three wedges, you know, the text is tiny and hard to read unless you had the book in front of you, but it says connect to God, connect to small group family, connect them to purpose. So you see the growth, sort of the development in the connections that they have. So first 
they are connected to God. Secondly, they're connected to a family of some kind, and then they're connected to their purpose. So the first thing that they need to learn how to do is that divine discipleship context. Hey, you need to learn how to develop a reading habit on your own. You need to learn to develop a praying habit on your own. You need to start developing your own spiritual disciplines. You need to learn what fasting is and what giving is and what celebration is and what rest is. A great book for spiritual disciplines, by the way, there's um, Spirit of the Dif- uh, Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard, which I've not read. It's a big, thick book. My brother's read it. He said it's about like stereo instructions, some of it. It's very heady. But then there's a guy named John Ortberg, and Ortberg wrote what he calls Dallas for Dummies. It's a watered-down version of the disciplines just for – it reads kind of like a Max Licato book. And it's called The Life You've Always Wanted. It's by John Ortberg. And it goes – each chapter is about a different spiritual discipline. And it's about how spiritual disciplines transform us and take us from being one thing to something else. Remember, Jesus says, follow me, and I will change you into something. I will change you into a disciple, someone who is fishing for people. And so we want to see that transformation happen. So when you are a spiritual child, that's what you've got to develop. You've got to develop a connection with God. How are you going to do that unless someone shows you how to do it? How is someone who is a spiritual child going to learn about fasting, going to learn about praying, going to learn about giving, unless someone tells them that it needs to be done, unless someone tells them how to do it, unless someone models it for them. So you can't teach a child can't teach a spiritual child to have a daily reading discipline if you're not regularly reading the Bible yourself. It's going to be hard to say anything about prayer if you never pray. So it requires being discipled by someone a little farther, someone a little farther down the road, someone a little more spiritually mature. So you develop that connection to God. Then uh, they need that connection to small group, family. They need to be connected with other Christians that are going to hold them accountable, that are going to help them grow. This is like having brothers and sisters. So they still have a spiritual parent, but they need they need brothers and sisters or neighbor kids. They need friends. They need people around that they can count on that are growing alongside them at different stages of growth. Behind them, in front of them, doesn't really matter. They just need to develop some connections to people and sort of figure out where they are in the grand scheme of things. And through all that, hopefully, as they grow older, they will develop a connection to purpose which is a much more blobby, amorphous thing. What purpose? What does that mean? What is my connection to purpose? Uh, This is why the book of Ephesians is really great for the childhood stage, because Ephesians talks a lot about identity in Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? What does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for our behavior? What does it mean for the people around us? So start developing this new identity, this new sense of self. And you can see as it goes around, the things get more complex. This is very typical of childhood. In childhood, you learn math. You start learning the count and learning your numbers. Then you do addition and then you do multiplication and then you do algebra and then you do calculus and then you do architecture, right? You do um, letters and then you learn to read and then you learn grammar and then you learn Shakespeare, right? Uh, So the things that we learn, they grow in complexity. They grow in difficulty and the same thing's going to happen spiritually. As we grow in our connections, our language and behaviors are going to go from being self-focused and start to become others-focused. They're going to start to become God-focused. So you can see here at the center of this wheel, we have sort of what characterizes each stage. Uh, again, I know the text is very small, especially if you're watching this on a phone or something. But in the in the child quadrant, the bottom right there in the very center, it says language and behaviors are characterized by self-centeredness. I like to use the word self-focused. 
A child is self-focused. Nobody faults a child for being self-focused, right? The seven-year-old needs to go to school. Nobody tells the seven-year-old to get a job and buy a car and drive himself to school. That's ridiculous, right? It's unheard of. So why would we do that to a spiritual child? Why would we tell a spiritual child, figure it out for yourself? How could they? They're not equipped to do that. It's okay for a spiritual child to be self-focused. That's understandable. That's just where they are. You don't blame a child for being self-focused. You don't blame an infant for being totally dependent. That's the nature of infants. That's just what it is. So the same thing happens spiritually. When you have a spiritual infant, you don't blame them for their behavior. You don't blame them for not knowing anything. You don't shame them for continuing a bunch of bad habits. They haven't learned anything yet. They're, they're making messes. That's what babies do. It's okay. Like, it's not okay that there's a mess, but it's, a, it's understandable that they do that. So the parent needs to come in and help clean up that mess and help potty train, right? help, de- help develop through this spiritual infancy stage and say, okay, you need to gain the growth and the power now that you've got some understanding about this to be able to stop some of these things on your own. I remember when I first started learning about some of this discipleship stuff, it was very helpful for me. And one of the first young men that came into my life, his name is Simon. And he's been very open about his story, which is the only reason why I share any of it here. There's videos online and that, that sort of thing about it. But when he and I first started reading together, he had a very um, sort of conversion experience and just was really, very emotional and really excited about reading and, and, and following uh, Christ. But he was coming out of, a, of living his life on his own terms for the last six years and through high school and college. And he'd already made a lot of decisions about the kind of friends he was going to have and who he was going to live with and the, his, his friends at work and this sort of thing. And so there were a lot of things that happened early on that looked similar to things that he did before he started studying and reading again. That's to be expected. And if I hadn't had some training on discipleship, I might have come down with, hey, you need to stop doing these things. And that might have ended our discipleship early on. I don't I don't know. I don't know how he would have responded to that. What I do know is that as we continued to read and he continued to grow in his spiritual maturity, he would come to me and say, well, here's what happened last weekend. And I'd listen and I'd say, okay, well, what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? And he'd say how he felt about it. And I would say, hey, you know, you didn't even feel that way about it a month ago. So can you see that you're growing? Okay, you still did whatever thing you're talking about, but can you see now that you have a feeling about it? And maybe that will determine what you do next time, right? And it would. His behavior began to change, not because I was beating over the head with the Bible and telling him, do this, don't do that, but because we were reading together, Christ was transforming him. That's the promise that Christ gives. He's going to do the transformative work. As he practiced, as Simon practiced obedience and the things that we were reading, he started developing new habits. He started growing. He started developing spiritual connections. He started making a connection to God, making connection to the small group that was in our home, making connection to a church that he found that he really liked. It was a good, strong, Bible-believing church. He started figuring out what his purpose was. He started becoming active in ministry. And I got to see him grow through all of that. And so when we look at this and we see that, they, uh, that a, a child is self-focused, that's to be expected. But what we want to see through childhood is that they grow out of self-focusedness into others-focused, right? They want, we want to see them be God-focused, others-focused. And so that's what happens when you have a young adult. So again, a biological young adult, 
before we move on to the spiritual young adult, biological young adult, what are they doing? They're, you know, uh, maybe the guys are mowing yards or working at Taco Bell, or maybe they're doing student tutoring. They're becoming more interdependent. They're letting people now be dependent on them. They're helping other people. They're turning around and giving back. Uh, girls, what are they doing? They may be doing a lot of those same things as well. They may be babysitting. A lot of girls do that. What are they doing? They're practicing parenthood in a lot of ways. Yeah, they're doing it to make a buck and they're doing it so they can get paid for doing their homework or watching TV or whatever. I, I get that too. They're, they're teenagers, they're kids. But at some level, aren't they kind of practicing parenthood a little bit? Well, the same thing needs to happen spiritually. You don't just jump right into parenthood. That can be very terrifying. But what if there were some way you could sort of practice the things for parenthood? And so that's exactly what you see happening here in the young adult stage is training to minister. And so the three little um, trivial pursuit pie pieces here say equip for ministry, provide ministry opportunity, uh, provide ministry opportunities and release to do ministry. So again, you see the progression and you see the growth. You start equipping them to be able to do any kind of ministry. You teach them about ministry. And then they, you provide them with opportunities to do ministry. I think it was Frederick Beekner that said, your calling is where your greatest desire and the world's greatest need meet. That's what, that's where God's called you to be. I, I don't, I'm sure you could back that up with some scripture. Obviously that's not from scripture, but I think it's a, a very wise thing to think about. Here's something that I really love to do and I'm good at. And here's something that the world really needs. Well, I'm going to put these two things together and suddenly you'll find that there's a lot of opportunities there. So, some people cannot find what they're passionate about ministry-wise until they're provided with the opportunities to do it. And also as they're provided ministry opportunities to do it, that's when a lot of that self-focusedness to others-focused, um, that self-centeredness to other-centeredness, that's where a lot of that changes because they begin to see, well, here's how I want to do things, but this isn't helpful to those people to do it this way. I need to listen to them. And I need to see what their needs are. And I need to do the things that are going to help them, not just the things that I want to do or the ways that I want to do it. And suddenly they are now focused on others and they're do, doing things because God said to do them, not because they get something out of it, not because they develop friendships or something like that. Sometimes you enter into ministry and there's no immediate reward. And so you have to know I'm doing this because this is what God commanded me to do. This is what God said to do. And it's the right thing to do. And so a young adult becomes God-centered, others-centered. So then again, just like a biological young adult, they're going to grow up and possibly become a parent one day. What's the dividing line between being a spiritual young adult and a spiritual parent? You have a child. It's the same. What's the difference between being an adult and being a parent? You have a child. That's the only difference. So spiritually, it's the same thing. What does it require to be a spiritual parent? You have, to, you have a child. Just find someone to disciple. Now, this I, I think this is the part that's really intimidating for people because I think people think this means you've got to go down to the sit-go station and witness to everybody in line until somebody goes home with you and you can baptize them that night. First of all, that would be awesome. You should do it, okay? But that's not really what we're talking about. And that's not a very natural way of doing things, particularly when you're around people pretty much all day, all the time. Many of us are. Even those of us that are retired and that sort of things, I mean, there's we have we, there's certain places that we go to all the time. I know when I taught one of the adult classes at church, some of the old guys, they went to the same golf course all the time. Uh, there were some ladies that would get together with their, their neighbors and, and do coffee or tea or something like that. Uh, soup once a week, something like that. Uh, I go to the same coffee shops and breakfast places a lot. So I know the people that work there. These are people I'm around all the time anyway. 
So why reinvent the wheel and start something with strangers completely out of the box, cold, when you have, as Jesus said, ah, the fields are white, white with harvest. Just look around. Pay attention, right? So think about that. Think about being the self-appointed chaplain of a place and not just even the lost people that you know, the, the non-Christian people that you know. Think about the people at church. People at, at your church have not been discipled, most likely. People my age and older, we grew up in a little bit of a Christian culture, and so we've been able to have the benefit of Christian people helping us through school, helping us through life. It's friends of family. A lot of our friends were church friends or went to another church that believed something similar to what we believe. Today's world is not like that anymore. As our, my preacher David Young says, we are not the home team anymore. And so we've got to be really intentional about discipleship now. And that starts right on the pew where you sit. That starts right in your own church. So I, and I think this is the low-hanging fruit for us that is, is real comfortable territory for those of us who are Christians. Find somebody at church and just take them out for coffee once a week and read the Bible with them. Just do a discovery Bible study with them. Almost all of us can do one discovery Bible study a week. Pair it up with a lunch you're already having or a breakfast you're already having, and then you're not even sacrificing time, really, because it doesn't take 45 minutes or an hour to do a Discovery Bible study. You can do it while you're eating with somebody else. It's not difficult. It's not really that big a deal to do, and yet it's a, a thing that will transform both of your lives, I promise. So how do you become a spiritual parent? You just get a spiritual child. So everybody listening now, I want you to think about somebody at church, someone who sits near you or is in a class with you someone who lives near you, whatever, somebody that you already have a relationship with, someone that you could for the next, I don't know, six weeks, just talk by phone. Once everything starts opening back up, if you're going back out, maybe you guys can meet up for a, a coffee or a biscuit in the parking lot or something like that. But I want you to think about somebody that over the next six weeks, you could just spend an hour with on the phone or uh, across the table talking about the Bible reading a piece of scripture and talking about it. You know somebody that you could do that with. And so I would love for you to reach out to that person tomorrow, tonight would be even better. Think about somebody that you could just spend some time with and encourage and read the Bible with. Everyone at your church needs this. Maybe you feel like a spiritual infant. Maybe you feel like a spiritual child. If you're part of a church and you feel like a spiritual infant or a spiritual child, then I bet you know somebody at your church that you really look up to and say, wow, that person knows a lot about the Bible or wow, that person always does the right thing or wow, that person's a great father to his family or wow, this person is just the sweetest woman to uh, everyone that she meets. You know somebody at your church that's ahead of you in their walk, someone that you would like to disciple you. It would be great if you had both, if you had time for it. And I think most of us have time for it if we make the time. Um, my, my brother says you need a, a, a Paul and uh, you need a Barnabas, you need a Silas and a Timothy. So uh, Paul had Barnabas that was kind of a, a disciple maker for him, someone that mentored him. Silas was somebody that worked along beside him. And Timothy was someone that he discipled. So every Paul needs a Barnabas, a Silas and a Timothy. You need somebody that is training you, mentoring you. You need someone that is working alongside you and you need someone that you are giving back to. You need someone that you are mentoring and helping to grow and helping to mature. So that's a little bit of the discipleship process, how a disciple grows, the kinds of things that a disciple needs. 
Again, get the PDF. You can look at it in detail and it'll make a lot more sense. I'm just trying to give you some good background so that when you do look at this PDF, you'll be able to do it on your own and it'll make sense. Um, we're going to come back tomorrow night for part four and we're going to zip through the rest of the pages in the in the booklet. I very intentionally went real slow here in the beginning. A lot of the pages in the end, we can just spend a couple of minutes on per page and get through. I really only have one or two other things that I really uh, want to get down. But what I really want to leave you with is this. The best way to think about discipleship is really thinking of that word parent. Even those of us that aren't parents have parents. And so we know what parenthood ought to be like, or we've seen uh, parents, we've seen families that we think, oh, there's a family that's really functioning well. I would like to be in a family like that. We know, we understand the concept of parenthood. We understand the concept of family. Discipleship is not something you do. It's not an event. It's not a program. It's not a worksheet. It's not a workbook. Discipleship is not something you do. It's something you are like family. Discipling is something that you do like growing. A disciple is something, is a relationship that you have, like, like you have with a child, or like you have with a parent. When we can start to think of it more in those terms, in the parent family terms, rather than in the doing, teaching, class, workshop, get something done, making things term, when we can think of it in growing instead of making, I think we're going to really begin to understand what discipleship is, what Jesus calls us to do. And I think that is going to empower us and encourage us to go out and do it. So that person that you were thinking of in your church earlier that you want to disciple or that you want to disciple you, send them a text message tonight, send them an email tonight, call them in the morning, let them know, hey, I'd like to spend one hour a week with you for the next six weeks. Would you be willing to do that? I bet they'll say yes. Most people don't know that anyone else thinks about them when they're not around. And so to get a phone call like that, I'm betting almost everyone is going to be humbled, impressed, thankful. So call that person very soon and uh, set that up. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolas, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.